Good morning. Really good to be with you this morning. My name is Glenn Davies. Another welcome to all of you who are tuning here in here to Facebook Live this morning. I am very excited this morning for a number of reasons. Uh, number one, we are starting a brand new summer series in the book of Micah. If you have that with you, it's in the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. Uh, you can look that up while I'm introducing this this morning. I'll be starting the series this morning for you, but this will actually be the only message in the series that I will be preaching. I will be beginning a mini sabbatical from preaching uh, for the summer, which uh, the last few summers I've been able to do, which is a good break for me and a good break for you from me. Yeah, I know, it's needed. And uh, so uh, in this seven-part series, I'll open today. Rudy will be speaking three times, and then we will have three guest speakers. Um, uh, one is a former elder and member of the Rock Church. Paul Siemens will be here on July 19th. And then to wind up the series in August, we'll have two men from Northview Church, our big brother church in Abbotsford, will be coming. So a question that some of you may have and is a normal question to be asking, so why Micah, right? Why would we uh, go to the book of Micah in the Old Testament for the summer? That's a really good question. Uh, the, the answer is pretty simple, uh, which is what we typically do is we pray. Uh, and Rudy and I have been praying, and the elders have been praying, and, and asking, Lord, where should we go this summer? What Holy Spirit do you feel would be good for us to hear as a church, specifically at the Rock Church? Now, the reality is, is that for a, a lot of preachers and pastors, and I totally get it, uh, summers can be challenging um, because we know, we know people are going to check out a little bit, you know, go on vacation and so forth. And so the tendency is to, to kind of go light, you know, like summer in the Psalms. Well, Micah is not that and not that at all. On the other hand, uh, we truly hope that what you're going to see is this. What you're going to see uh, when we go through this series, although there will be parts that are hard, is that over several weeks you will start to see that Micah is perfect. It truly is perfect for us as a church and at this time in our world. And yet, yes, it can be hard. Some of it is hard. The saying is true. The good news hardly makes sense without the bad news first. Okay, you with me? Please stick with me. And this is so true about our text for today in chapter 1 of Micah. Now, many of you who've been with us here at the Rock Church over the years, you will know that there's a question that I like to ask, whether it's to unbelievers or to skeptics or to anyone for that matter, just to get a conversation going about faith. And that question is this, are things in our world the way that they should be? And of course, you know that the answer universally usually is most people will go, no, no, they're not the way that they should be. Well, as you know, the answer is that. But today, I think that if I were honestly to go onto the street and, you know, do one of those man-on-the-street interviews and ask that question to people outside the coffee shop uh, in downtown Squamish on a daily basis, I think a few people would like, kind of look at me like, you know, buddy, are you suffering from social distancing and self-isolating too much? Do you know, have you not seen what's going on in our world? No, things are not the way that they should be would, I think, be their answer. I mean, with COVID-19, the economic crisis, and then the recent racial injustices and explosion of rage, especially in the United States over police brutality, on and on it goes. I think it would be clear to everyone that no, things are definitely not the way that they should be. But then the question becomes, well, what can we do about it? What, if anything, can be done about it? And I'm sure most of us 
have seen recently that there are a lot of people, especially on social media, who are, uh, have no shortage of opinions and, and quite frankly, uh, voices that are claiming to know what you and I apparently don't know that we need to know in order to know what to do. <laughs> I know, it's, it can be confusing, but that seems to be what's out there. Lots of opinions, lots of opinions about that. Well, listen, I think what we need to do this morning as we go into this text for today and this opening of this book, is we just need to speak truth to our current cultural moment, a moment that is no different than any other time in history, but maybe feels like it is. And the truth is this, we live in a completely broken world. It's just the truth. You don't have to be older to see that. Even younger people are shaking their heads and wondering. So we look around and we see, yes, all the exploitation and the oppression, all the sickness and the needless suffering, all the diseases that seem to be out of our control, like there's almost nothing we can do about them but wait for a vaccine. And with all of that in view, we confidently still say, no, things are not the way that they should be. So two more questions arise, don't they? First, again, where does the inclination, the very idea, the very thought that there is, quite frankly, a perfect way that things should be, where in the world does that even come from? Where, if we're, listen, if we're just this fleshed-out mass of DNA, right, uh, the, the result of unguided and purposeless evolution, where does the vision for the way things ought to be perfectly even come from, right? I think, you know, you see, the, the, one of the main reasons why we've actually arrived at such a div divisive time in our culture is a direct result of not understanding where the impetus for that comes from. As Christians, we know where that comes from, don't we? We know that it comes from the very imago Dei, the image of God resident in us, even in the unbeliever, but specifically in the Christian. We know that. Without that basic understanding, however, we've arrived at a point where there's complete confusion over how to fix our broken world because everyone believes that they know better than the other person. Our relativistic and individualistic bent today has brought us to the place where we have all, listen, come to the point where we, we, no, we no longer have any authority over, it, over us, but more importantly, we don't want any authority over us. So there is, culturally speaking, no ultimate truth. That then leads to this penetrating question that we must ask. And I ask this of people who are more than willing to point fingers elsewhere and say, yeah, the world's wrong, politicians are wrong, this is wrong, that's wrong. But then the follow-up question is this. Are things the way that they should be in your own life, in your own heart and relationships? Like I said, it's easy to point fingers, right? At others, at the world, at those in authority or the past or history and make our final judgments. But if we're honest, come on. If we're really honest, our hearts tell us that we're, we personally are not the way that we should be or would like to be, or at least they should. So these are the moments, these are the moments right now in our history, these are the moments in our lives and culture where we all experience this longing for justice, for mercy, for fairness, 
for goodness. Do you feel it? Don't, don't you feel it, that longing for that? These are the moments where we need to hear from an oracle of God, like Micah, as hard as it might be to begin. Our longing for justice is not just a current reality. It's an ancient human reality. It's from all times past. It's the reality of who we are as humans. So what justice, what should justice, pardon me, mercy, fairness, and goodness even look like? How do we know what it should look like? How do we experience them are the questions we need to ask and we, I hope, will find in this study of Micah. How do we pursue them? And what prevents us from experiencing these realities today as Christians, as the church? Our key verse for this series is where we get our series title, but also our title for our message today. It comes from Micah 6.8. Pretty famous bumper sticker verse. Every book of the Bible seems to have one, but Micah's verse is awesome. And it's our theme verse. It is this. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice and to love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Our sermon title, again, is Do Justice, Love Kindness, and Walk Humbly. I hope to show you two things from this text today. Number one, the shocking truth about judgment. I'll let you know in advance it's going to take up most of our message for today. Point number one will. And then point number two, the faithful servant's response. And before we dive into looking at this chapter and this story today, let me pray one more time. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this opportunity to be here today together. Uh, we are gathering together even in the way that we're doing this, this, so we thank you for this technology. We thank you for the ability to do that. Holy Spirit of God, I pray to you today. You are the one who inspired Micah. You are the one who inspired him to write these words. He is a, an oracle and a prophet of yours. So we ask you today to speak to us through this, to teach us, to truly humble us so we may be able to walk with you, our God. Oh, Lord, I need your help. We need your help, especially in these days. So would you teach us from this word? And I pray these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So you know the pattern. Usually we read the whole uh, chapter or passage before we dive in today. It's a long chapter, 16 verses a lot of very interesting places and pronunciations, so I'm going to just skip over that. But really, I think it would be better for us to just look at a few of the verses in context, give us a good look at the whole story and passage, and we'll begin in verse 1 and with point number 1, the shocking truth about judgment. So read with me verse 1, and we'll look at this uh, prophecy from Micah. He records the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. And so from the beginning, we're introduced here to the prophet of the Lord whose name is Micah. Now, his name literally in the Hebrew means this. It means, who is like God? Question mark. Right? It's not that he is like God. It is like, who is like God? That's, his, that's what his name literally means. Great name. And we learn that he comes from a small town called Morasheth. He's a full-time prophet in the city of Jerusalem. 
Uh, his ministry takes place, we are told in this first verse, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, who were kings, historical kings of Judah. And so that tells us he preached for like 53 years. Hmm. That's a long time. That's a great ministry. And so from uh, 740 B.C. to 687 B.C. were the years of his ministry. What's also interesting is he had a colleague in the capital of Jerusalem who was also a prophet. And you all know his name. His name is Isaiah. And they worked together in Jerusalem and prophesied at the same time. Now, the historical context here is important. At this point in Israel's history, the nation has been divided in two. So already within the people of Israel, within the church per se, there's division. One kingdom is the northern kingdom. Ten of the twelve tribes of Israel are in the north. They call themselves the kingdom of Israel. And their capital city is Samaria. And Benjamin and Judah to the south have the capital city of Jerusalem, and their kingdom is called the kingdom of Judah. Now, Micah himself is from the southern kingdom, but he has an oracle or word, as we see in this text today, from the Lord for both the north and the south, for all of the people. His hometown is actually uh, quite a ways from Jerusalem, a small town, and we're going to pick up on his reference towards Quite frankly, his, uh, his preference, I should say, to the smaller town than the big city of Jerusalem and its lures. Uh, so he opens his word and his prophecy in verses 2 and 3 with these words. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness to you, against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. So Micah opens his word, his oracle, another word for that in some of your translations, from the Lord in a traditional fashion. That would have, I believe, at the very beginning anyway, most of the people who would be listening to him or reading it or hearing him proclaiming it uh, uh, publicly, which he would have done, would have heard it so far and been expected this is just a traditional Okay, this is a traditional opening of an oracle of the Lord, of a word of the Lord, and prophecy. And again, first anyway, they may have felt that this is hopeful, right? They, they, they may have heard verses 2 and 3 and thought this. Preach it, brother. Great. Things have been tough. Um, we, we like where you're going with this. Yes, Lord, pour out your wrath and your anger and your judgment on those who oppress us. You know the usual suspects, Lord. You know who they are, right? They're the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Yes, they are the Egyptians and the Moabites. Yes, those people, Lord. Yes, smite them. So they think this, you know, at, at the first anyway, the get-go in the beginning, this is looking pretty good and they're excited. And you see, the reason for that is they'd heard many other prophets begin their prophecies this way, and that's actually how it ended up. It was a prophecy from God about what he was going to do to the enemies of the people of Israel, how he was going to come against them, how he was going to leave his holy and highest place, which is in heaven, and come against their places of wealth and power, their high places, which were their great cities and their temples, and he would smite them and judge them. And destroy them. Well, there's a key word here that we must not miss or overlook before we continue, as we will come back to it later, quite frankly. And that word is, do you see it there? It's the word witness, right? Witness against you. What Mike is getting at when he says that is this. 
let the Lord God be a witness against you, people of Samaria and Jerusalem. He's saying, in fact, in the, in the affirmative that God is a witness in this prophecy against you. He's saying, and all the people in that day knew or listened, should have known all the while, that they were living their lives however they saw fit, that God, when they were doing that, God is in a constant witness to everything that you're doing, that He sees and that He hears everything. That's frightening, right? Well, they should have known that. They should have, but they lived as if He wasn't. And then He does act. Micah goes on and explains it to them. All this is for the transgression of Jacob, for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Yeah. Micah's letting them know that he saw their transgressions, he saw their sins. So this, this is shocking, really shocking indeed. This, this prophecy, this word of the Lord, is not about their enemies. That is now clear. But it is about them, the people of Israel. And this is key. It is the Lord's judgment on their holy cities, their capitals of both Israel to the north and to the south, at least to what they have done with them. This then is the Lord's Judgment. This is God's judgment. Hear this on His church, on His people. So catch your breath. It gets worse. Micah's word from the Lord pays special attention to the city of Samaria, but it includes Jerusalem. He prom promises that He will reduce them, look, to a heap, if you read on, to a heap of rocks that will only be good for planting a vineyard. But why? Why would he be doing that? Why would he judge them in this way? Well, we get a hint from the words above, the words high places. We saw them in verse 3 already when we're told that God will descend and tread upon these high places. And now here he tells us that the people of Israel have made their own high places. So what are they? Are they holy places? No, they're not. When we read or when you read the, of these places in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, when, they, when you read about them, they, they, they represent places in every case of pagan worship where pagan sacrifices are made to their pagan gods, their places of prostitution, and their places where the demonic prevails and dwells. The Apostle Paul gives us a, a word to this effect in Ephesians 6.12. Remember that? The spiritual warfare passage in Ephesians chapter 6, where he says this, For we, now he's speaking to Christians, to the church, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil, look at this, in heavenly places, in high places places. Same thing. And that is why God is moved to act. He's moved to act. And Micah reveals why in verse 7. In verse 7, he records the word of the Lord. 
all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. So why? Why does he act now? Idolatry. Idolatry. And and here, church, listen, Rock Church, friends, here is the place where we must We must be careful and check our own hearts. We mustn't think like they did in that day. We mustn't think that this is not potentially about us today or could not be potentially about us today. Just going about our lives, living our lives in this world and in this culture, alongside this world and this culture, and thinking that, yeah, God God may not even be watching, may not be seeing, may not be hearing, but at least we'll probably not do anything about it. Even in their holy cities, the capitals were there, uh, where they had their temples and attended church, attempting to keep all the laws even there. God's witness against them was that they had become, they had become just like the pagans in that world and culture, just like the world, bowing down to the idols of wealth, of sex, and of power and not in faithfulness towards their God. And listen, Micah's not the first prophet to warn them to turn from their wicked ways and their idols. God has been, he's so gracious, he's so merciful, he's constantly giving them warnings and calling them back to himself. But at some point, he must act. And he always does. He always does. So how about a definition of idols? You all know my favorite preacher. You know his name by now. Uh, He's retired from preaching, but he's still out there. Uh, His name is Tim Keller. He's defined it really well. I like this is a great, uh, just a synthesis of a definition of an idol that we can all relate to. He said this, an idol is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. I'm sure many of us could make a list of things today, a couple anyway, that if somehow we were to lose them, life would hardly feel worth living. That object, of course, could be your money. It could be wealth. It could be your influence in this world. It could be romance or the hope of romance. It could be power, control, approval, or even comfort and so on. You know the idols. You know what they are, right? He also said this. And this is very challenging for us, church, but I, I want to give you this uh, additional ad- addendum that Tim Keller gives to the idea of idols. He says that the greatest danger, because it is such a subtle temptation which enables us to continue as church members and feel that nothing is wrong, is, that, is not that we become atheist, he says, but that we ask God to coexist with idols in our hearts and in our lives. And that is exactly what Micah is warning the people of Israel about and us here today. So friends, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage all of us this summer to be watchful in this season, watchful for these high places where our idols live. We all have them. And and here's a clue. (laughs) It's a really simple clue. 
they're the same places that everyone who does not worship God goes to. They're the same places, exactly the same places. So look for those things that that have a controlling place in your heart that you spend more of your passion and energy on, your emotional and financial resources on, without even blinking. It just becomes, it's a natural reflex. Oh, dear, how I've been meditating on those things this past week. They can be family and children, or they can be our careers or making money, or advancement and critical acclaim, praise, or social standing. They are the exact same places of worship our culture bows to and indulges in. Man, I've been thinking about this what about, I mean, the, we, we look at the ethereal or uh, the subjects, the broad subjects, but what about literal places, and especially because of COVID, that we cannot go to? What, what about places of worship like concerts and, and, and public areas where we can go and listen to good music and, or, or just be in a, in a pub, in a restaurant with lots of other people? Or how about this? How about a live hockey game? I love hockey, you know I do. Friends, these can become places of worship. We put on the apparel. We become a team member. Really? Well, if they, if they take our affection away from the Lord our God and He sees that, then they're an idol. So this, friends, is also another perfect example of the Imago Dei, isn't it? I mean, the truth is, we are worshipers. We all worship. We do. It's, it's in our very DNA to elevate and worship, whether believer or unbeliever. Sadly, sadly, and I hope you know this is true, worshiping idols instead of God leads only to judgment and to eventually destruction. Idols always, always fail us. God never does. He will never, ever fail you. And so this is the hardest part, I think, I'm sure, about studying a prophet like Micah. It's looking straight into the face of God's anger and his wrath towards sin of all kinds, but most notably, idolatry. You all know the Ten Commandments, right? You know them. Sometimes we might look at them as the rules and regs, right? We've looked at it that way and think, well, if you mess up, you know, God's going to punish you. You know, if you lie a little bit here, steal a little bit there, or worse, you know, you murder somebody, that's pretty serious. Well, you're in trouble with God, let alone the authorities. If that's the way you, you think or the way that you've been taught uh, to think about God's righteous anger and wrath towards sin, you may have missed the point. I think many of us have, and maybe still do to this day. The truth is, the truth is God knows better than anyone what sin is and what it does. Sin is actually killing us. It's not a matter of we do something and, and therefore He punishes us. It's He's concerned about the fact that sin is actually killing us. It's looking, it really, it's like a cancer that you cannot see. Someone looks healthy, but the cancer is in them, and eventually it will kill them. That's what sin does to us. So we have this false notion 
that the good life that we see or hear about in the world and through the world's wisdom is what will lead us to human flourishing. And so we throw ourselves at the world and the, the, the lusts of this world and, yes, the idols of this world, thinking they will make us happy and pr- provide for us the kind of human flourishing that we all desire. And yet, God knows that they won't, that they won't. They will fail us. So as we've already seen and agreed, despite us trying on our own, in our own will, things are not the way that they should be. Are you tired? Are you tired of that yet? God's goal, as we'll see through Micah, his reason for judging and, yes, disciplining even his own children is one thing. It's his great love for you. It's it's how he loves us. That's what every loving father should do when his children are walking astray. Yes? Yes. That's how we show our love. So listen, this is also true. Yes, God hates oppression and abuse. Of course he does. He will not turn a blind eye to it. He won't. In the same way, however, he will not turn a blind eye to our sin, to the sin of his own people. Because of sin, God tells us through Micah that judgment is inevitable. He will warn. He will warn. He will let us fall down and get sick and then turn hopefully to him and cry out to him. It's inevitable, however. He does not and he will not overlook sin and its consequences. It's against his very nature to have a blind eye to sin and its consequences. It's against it. And to pretend that they do not exist. We should be grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. Are you? So this is why Micah is not the easiest book to read. Not because it's boring, believe me, or or seems irrelevant but because it makes us feel uncomfortable. Good. It's good. We cry out for justice to be served on others, don't we? For the wrongs of others. But here's the question. Are you willing to and and wanting to cry out for God to mete out His justice on you, on me? Well, not too often, right? That's not usually the way we go about it. And so the question is, how even-handed are we when we demand justice of others? So let's answer the first point. What's the shocking truth about judgment? It's this. Nobody sees it coming. They didn't see it coming. It's the shocking truth about judgment. It's not that it's not a good thing. It's that people don't see it coming. They hear the warnings. They hear warnings. They don't believe it. Nobody does. Point number two, the faithful servant's response. Look at verses 8 and 9. For this I will lament and wail. Micah's words. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches, for her her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people. 
to Jerusalem. So we are going to conclude quickly here with these two verses and a few comments about how the chapter ends. And then then I want to give us a call to action as a church. The faithful servant Micah, I suggest to you, is a fantastic model for all of us here. And we need to follow his lead today. I truly believe more than ever. And so what is his response? Well, we read both right here that it's both to lament and to repent. He laments and he repents. He doesn't claim to be any different than his fellow Jews, right? He laments, which is a great word meaning deep sorrow and grief. It's a really deep, painful sorrow and grief. In the Bible, we see lament over the loss of loved ones, over hardship, but most notably, over sin. There's even a book in the Bible called Lamentations, right? We should study that book sometime. Sounds like fun. It is. It's beautiful. It's the word of the Lord. We also see in Genesis and Exodus Exodus, how God himself laments and grieves over our sin and over our rebellion against him. So now we must see this in verse 9. See this carefully. Look at this. It's important. This is awesome. Micah notes that her wound, right, the cities and their people's wound, our wound is incurable. This is what leads, that is what leads to true repentance, is coming to understand that about our wounds, our brokenness. The acknowledgement that our sin separates us from a holy and righteous God and that there is nothing that you and I can do to fix ourselves. Somebody please say, hallelujah, that's really good news. But that's not the way we think. That's not the way our world thinks. But this is the gospel. And this is the truth. We cannot fix ourselves. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot heal and cure our own wounds. We cannot cure ourselves or our broken world. We cannot do that. We can participate with the one who can. Hmm. So the rest of this chapter is about what you would expect. Micah announces that the judgment will come and that God will bring and use the very enemies of his own people to bring his judgment upon them. Does that not feel that way sometimes in our culture and our world today, that the world is punishing us? I'll let you think about that and pray about that this week. The very cities that are listed, you can do the study for yourself and read it for yourself, that are listed in verses 10 to 15 tell us the path is from the north and therefore it means that it's going to be the Assyrian army that's going to come. Prophecy made did happen. So yes, this is, this is hard indeed, isn't it? It's hard. It's a hard word. But as we continue week after week, you're going to see great hope that our Heavenly Father through Micah wants us all to see. We just saw the one brief hint here in chapter 1. That one brief hint is the word incurable. It said, for her wounds are incurable. But we know, don't we, friends? 
who that one is who bore our transgressions, who was wounded for, wounded for our sins, we know who that person is, don't we? Micah did. Micah did too. He did. Remember? His contemporary who he worked with day in and day out in Jerusalem was the prophet Isaiah. And you remember what he wrote, right? He wrote these words. But he, Jesus, was, this is 700 years before it happened, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are cured, healed. Same word, same idea. I want to close this morning by highlighting a podcast that I've been sharing with uh, all of our leaders at the Rock Church and elders over the past few weeks. I really want to encourage you this summer, please look this podcast up. It's called This Cultural Moment, uh, in, and specifically I want you to look back a year at what are called the Portland Sessions. There are six sessions. They are less than 30 minutes each. They are given by an Australian pastor uh, whose name is Mark Sayers. Um, the Portland Sessions are a group of pastors that got together from all over the world, from the most liberal progressive cities in the world, people who love their liberal and progressive cities. They are, as I said, these are going to bless you. Please listen to them. At the conclusion, here's what you're going to hear, and I want you to hear. I want you to to hear the call to us this summer, that this be the call to us this summer. It's about this. It's first a call to personal renewal. Friends, you want to see the world changed? You want to see oppression and injustice overturned in our world today? We need a personal renewal. We need to confess our sins. We need a personal renewal in our faith and walk with Jesus this summer, church. And as church, listen, we're going to require repentance. We're going to require true repentance. And secondly, my prayer is this, that we will all recognize this. As the speaker, Mark Sayers, aptly points out, that we are all far more secularized more like this world than we want to admit or maybe even realize. I think many of us have become the proverbial frog in the slowly warming pot of soup, and we don't even realize it. We don't even see it. I want to encourage you, as I'm going to ask God to do for myself, to allow the God of Micah to witness over you and reveal to you the high places that you've become attached to, and that this summer that you will make a conscious choice to de-secularize yourself, and then to re-engage yourself and your affections and your hearts towards God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the thing, church. I'm praying about this. I really am, and I believe this to be true. I truly believe that the Lord still wants to use this little church in Squamish, British Columbia called The Rock, in miraculous ways to do justice and to love kindness in our days. History tells us, his word tells us, that all he is looking for is a faithful remnant of true believers, of men and women who will walk humbly 
with their Lord and with their God. He's done it before. He's doing it today in many places around the world. I pray that He will do it here and in us and through us to the praise of His glorious name. Pray with me, would you? Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you, would you do a mighty work in all of our hearts? Start with me. I need a work in my heart this summer. I really need a work in my heart. Would you show me those high places, Lord? What are those things? What are those things, those idols that I, I put before you that are holding me back from walking humbly with you? and doing any kind of justice and kindness in this world today. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray for every man and woman in our church and their children. Lord, would you, would you speak to us this summer? Would you encourage us? Would you speak through Micah, your prophet, and would you show us the truth about our own hearts, about our own allegiances, and would you draw us back to yourself, fully back to you? Lord, we pray every day at 10.02 that you would cause your kingdom to come, that you would send faithful laborers into this harvest. Lord, I pray that you would call all of us, all of us here at the rock this summer back to you, fully to you, not to a church, not to a place, not to an event, but to you. Bless us, Lord, I pray. I pray this all, and I pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.